0: Welcome to our 14th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat podcast. We are your host, I'm Charlie.
1: And this is Russell. Uh,
0: Russell, we got a big episode today.
1: We sure do. Uh,
0: But we're going to do some shout outs. Uh, We want to give a special shout out. Um, Through our Facebook connections, we've made some pretty good um, connections with authors and uh, museums and curators um, one of them is Craig Moore, and uh, he he's wrote a couple of books, didn't he, Russ? Yeah, I believe he did. Yeah, he did. Um, I think one of his books was uh, on SPGs, and the other one was World War One tank hunting. And I know uh, he's been involved with a bunch of stuff. But the neat thing about uh, Craig Moore is uh, he's a fellow police officer. Gotta love that. Well, yeah, no doubt. Um, and he gave us some comments, uh, some of the comments, uh, that he's helping us to improve our show was, um, going from the, going to the metric system. He's like, you got a lot of European listeners. You really should start, you know, going from inches to the proper m- metric. And I'm like, well, me and Russ are old and we weren't taught that, but we'll, we'll do our best.
1: <laughs> I remember they tried to teach us that in school when I was a kid, but I... Don't ever remember really getting the hang of it too much.
0: These new kids, uh, this new math, and all this oh, stuff. wow, yeah. And, and I know the Europeans are like, w- w- "Are you guys are still using, you know, inches and yards and stuff?" That was like sixteen to seventeen hundreds, and I'm like, "Yeah, we're sorry." <laughs> um, who else do we got a shout out to?
1: Uh, yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to Jose Thomas. Um uh, he left a comment on our youtube page if you haven't checked us out on youtube yet uh, make sure you get out there and and subscribe to our two tankers in a cat podcast channel because um, this it actually comes out the podcast actually comes out on youtube uh, when we release the episode uh, but anyway uh, i want to apologize to mr thomas for uh we, keeping you waiting on the on the first sherman episode.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about it. Yeah, we finally got him out of the way. Yeah,
1: we finally got it out there and actually our endeavor into this podcast has never be successful without folks like Mr. Thomas and actually listening to what we put out. That's kind of neat. So, keep those comments coming and we really do enjoy reading the emails and the and the YouTube comments and everything. So,
0: now I did send uh this uh Jose Thomas a uh email back, and come to find out he's a World of Tanks player.
1: Hey, there we go. Yeah,
0: I think he said his name was Lieutenant Storm. So I said, well, I, I play artillery. I'll, I'll definitely look for you and so I can one-shot you. <laughs> Arty scumbags. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did get a uh, message um, from a female listener, and uh, we are proud to have female listeners that actually want to tune in and listen to us. Yeah. Because let's face it, we both have – you know, faces for radio.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So true. So true.
0: But this comes from a Christy McCarty out of, I think it's Pleasant Hill, Missouri. And uh, she was asking, what is this? I guess we did a video, but we were going to talk about muzzle brakes or barrel brakes. We explain what, and I keep, I keep saying barrel brakes, but that's not the proper way. Is it Russ?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think it's actually called muzzle brakes, but yeah.
0: So, why? I mean, what? tell us about the muzzle brakes.
1: Well, to be honest with you, I'll kind of give you an idea how, I mean, some of the folks out there may not even know how a gun works, to be honest with you. The gunpowder in the bullet actually explodes to produce a huge amount of gas, and it propels the bullet through the muzzle of the gun. And the muzzle of the gun is what they call the front end of the barrel from which the projectile exits. Um, That very same explosion causes an equal reaction in the opposite direction, and that's what we call recoil. The muzzle brakes were one of the many solutions to attempt to dampen the recoil, especially noticeable in larger field artillery and in your very big guns. I mean, the idea is that the release gas that propels the bullet out of the barrel can also be used to reduce the kickback from the weapon. Uh, this can be achieved in various ways, can simply cut holes or ports in the barrel itself to divert the gas upward or sideways. In the former case, this would push the muzzle down to help counteract muzzle jump. Uh, Other examples divert these gases slightly backward, away from the end of the barrel, and this helps push the barrel forwards a bit to counteract the recoil.
0: So you're saying that a lot of the muzzle brakes that we see are to reduce recoil, but nothing to do with um, like smoke, you know, pushing the smoke out of the way or anything? Yeah, any
1: actually, it, 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 a muzzle brake can actually help with the smoke management also. You got to figure that if you're shooting straight out of the gun, if the projectile's shooting straight out of the gun, all your gases and everything and, and smoke is going to be going straight out in front of the tank. So, what these muzzle brakes will do, I mean, you can kind of channel the smoke, I guess you would say, um, off to the sides. So that way the smoke's going off to the sides instead of straight, straight in front of the tank, which, I mean, if it was going straight in front of the tank, it would kind of obstruct the view of, of the commander and the gunner and everything to get ready to shoot the next round.
0: So you're saying that like when artillery would shoot like straight up in the air, they'd send out big plumes of these smoke, you know, and enemy already could could just find out where they were by looking at the smoke from the cloud. Yeah, true. And then and for tanks, you're, you're basically telling me that the smoke went out to the sides and it would, wouldn't block the gunner's view. I mean, he could get a more accurate shot instead of waiting for the smoke to blow out of the way. Yes, correct. Uh-huh. Okay. So basically it's for recoil and smoke management. Yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I did get a kind of funny question. And this came from uh, a Marie Ramsburg um, out of Missouri. Uh, she wanted to know. I keep using the term terminology, and so do you of the derp, D E R P. And they're like, "What? What is a derp gun?" And a derp gun is, and this this is kind of shameful on our part. It is a gamer term for guns that do massive damage. The exact definition is it's a gun that is a a howitzer, not, you know, not like a rifle barrel or anything like that. More of a howitzer type gun that does a lot of damage. And, you know, when you shoot somebody with one of these howitzer guns that does massive damage, you just go derp. (laughs) (laughs) Don't
1: feel too bad out there if you didn't know what it meant before because it took me a while to. Catch on to that, too.
0: Let's talk about the first point. Uh, Today's episode, talking about first points, is actually on Japanese tanks. Is that correct, Russ?
1: That is 100% correct.
0: Now, Russ is more of the battle of the Japanese uh, against the Soviets, the land battle, uh, the Chinese. Well, basically all the land battles. I've had some dealings with it. I'm more of a uh, Japanese naval uh, historian. But Russ is going to give us some information on some of the tanks the Japanese had, but I know the main one was the Type 95 Hago, and that was a light tank, correct?
1: Yes. Yes, that was a light tank.
0: And that was, I think, the most produced tank that they had, too. Yeah. And I think the second point is we're just going to cover some of the Japanese tanks and the tank battles, um, like Saipan and... There was another one by a river that was a big battle. that They fought with the Russians. What battle was that?
1: The Battle of Kalkin Gol.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get started on this.
1: Yeah. Charlie, I'm going to start off by asking you a few questions here and get your response. Charlie, why did Japan have trouble with tanks?
0: Well, if you're in the tank community, if you're aware of this, and if you're not aware of this, um, Japan... Is kind of made fun of quite a bit uh, because of the World War II tanks. I I don't want to say they were terrible. They were actually really well done, but they were the designs and how they got started just wasn't on par with, like, let's say the Germans and the Russian or Soviets. Boy, Craig Moore bringing up him, uh, he sent us a nice little suggestion and they're like, quit using terminology russian it was the soviet union and i'm like yes sir yes sir but the soviets had better tanks um just about everybody that was in the war had better tanks except the maybe the italians and uh we're going to discuss we're going to do a big episode on italian tanks because <laughs> russ is wanting to do one on tank ads and uh, we've talked about tank before the little two-seater you know, armored Tanks that run around with machine guns, and little
1: miniature tanks, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> that was a big fad. Um, but we'll get into that. The main problem that the Japanese had is it was a naval power, and the basically the navy kind of ran everything. I mean, they, you know, they had their imperial Japanese army, but they were wanting to kick out carriers and battleships, and, and they were using all their. Trained welders and engineers, and they needed you know for those anti-air or the aircraft carriers they needed airplanes, so the main producer of engines of course mitsubishi and uh who are still on making engines today <laughs> today, <laughs> really good engines too, but um look lightnings. Oh yeah, she's she's scratching on the chairs. She she's,
1: has been all riled up all day long, uh, so God only knows what she'll do today.
0: As always, if you hear something bumping and jumping, it's it's lightning. <laughs> the cat, she is here. Uh, we actually put a picture of her on this uh, episode that we're shooting now, and we put that on Facebook so you can get a, a pretty good picture of me getting bit on the hand. <laughs> I'm like, ah, it hurts. Now I lost my place. But what were you talking about? Oh, yeah, why the Japanese tanks were having such a bad problem. But all the resources were going towards the naval power. They weren't really interested in tanks, you know. I mean, the Imperial Navy was like, well, we're going to need some amphibian tanks, and we, we, we want some designs on that. And the Army was like, hey, we want some, you know, tanks and stuff like that. But all the real, all the money and everything else was going towards the naval power, so that made him really suffer, you know. Basically, the guy that was in charge, and we'll talk about him. He he was scraping together everything he could just to make decent tanks, and he really didn't have a budget. And you know, the Imperial Japanese, you know, they they wanted the naval power. They really weren't worried about tanks. And at the end of the war, they should have been worrying about tanks. Yeah,
1: that's what. Yeah. I think to start off with, we should explain the naming of the Japanese tanks. Now, I want to tell you, I'm going to mess
0: up these Japanese names horrible. Feel free to, you know, send us uh, some comments. But yeah, I I think we should discuss uh, naming the tanks. Like all weapons, uh, the year of introduction is the first criteria. Um, That year is computed on historical uh, calendar of Japan. Now, remember, there's a little bit different. Uh, There starts about 660 uh, 660 years BC. I think that's correct. The Type 89 tank was thus introduced in 1929, uh, the year 2589 of the Japanese calendar. Uh, Only the last two digits count. You know how that... Uh, however, several weapons, including tanks, might be introduced on any given year. Japanese uh, used ideograms or um, other various means for various weapons. Uh, the ideogram Chai meant a medium tank, T uh, was a tankad, Ki was a light tank, Ho was artillery, a self propelled gun was Ka. Uh, like an, uh, an amphibian tank was also Ka. There was a second Enneagram to distinguish the models. Uh, the Type 97 Chiha is a medium tank in, uh, introduced in their year uh, 2597, uh, basically our year of 1937. And uh, the Type 2 Kito is a light tank and was introduced in 1942. There is sometimes a surname to supplement or replace the ideograms. Uh, the type 95 or 97 chi uh, Chiha is a variation of the medium tank Chiha with a uh, new turret, the meaning of the word shinto uh, and I'm killing these and I know I'm sorry. The type 95 light tank had the surname Hago. Which was third model? Uh, this was given to it by the designer, which was uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Russ, let's talk about when
1: Japan starts making their own tanks or when do they start a program? Japan started in tanks. Uh, the Imperial Japanese Army, or the IJA, obtained a variety of models from foreign sources, as Japan did not have any indigenous tank production capability at that time. Uh, These models included one British heavy Mark IV and six medium Mark A Whippets, along with 13 French Renault FT's. Now, a Whippet is also a British tankette, right? Yes. Okay.
0: Like I said, we're going to do a tankette episode. We'll talk about the Whippet. Whippet good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I can't believe (laughs) we have our own podcast. Oh, boy.
1: (laughs) The Mark IV tank was purchased in October of 1918, while the Whippets and Renaults were acquired in 1919. So we're talking probably during the time period of World War I. Mm -hmm. In 1930, the Imperial Japanese Army purchased several Vickers, six-ton tanks, and six Cardin Lloyd tankettes from the British, and used these as a basis for further development.
0: This tankette, these tankettes was a huge fad. I can't wait to do that episode. Oh, yeah.
1: It's going to be really interesting. I agree. I've always kind of been fascinated with the little tankettes.
0: Well, Russ, we are talking about they bought these tanks, you know, like the Mark IV and, and the Pickers and, and the, you know, the Braults. When did Japan start their own program?
1: The Imperial Japanese Army established an armored force in 1925. Uh, Building tanks of their own met several problems, as Japan's priority tended to be with naval procurements, which you've already spoke about a little bit earlier in the podcast. So production for tank steel was on a lower level. Uh, development of the first Japanese-designed tank began in June 1925. A team of engineers participated in the development of the medium main battle tank, including a young Army officer, Major Tomio Hara. Hara... Went on to become the head of the tank development department. The design was finished in May of 1926, and the prototype was completed by February of 1927.
0: Now, I will comment on uh, Tamio uh, Hara. He was major then, and uh, he actually got kicked all the way up to a lieutenant general before the end of the war. And after the war, he actually wrote some very, very good books on Japanese tank design. And that you can still get these books, I believe, on
1: uh, Amazon.
0: Uh, talk, talk about when the design was finished.
1: Actually, when the design was rejected, a new requirement was issued for a lighter tank with a nominal 10 short ton weight. That's right. Because I think we
0: had talked to, me and you had talked earlier that the Type 87 chi was was uh, too heavy at 20 tons. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 That's right. and, and you got to remember, the first tank he's designing, he's wanted to design basically at the time a heavy tank. Yeah, it's basically a medium tank is what we would consider nowadays. But uh, twenty tons is a little bit too much to be going across wooden Japanese bridges. Very true. So the Japanese army's like, hey, you got the right idea. Just make it. Little. Everybody wanted those tankettes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Imperial Japanese Army determined that a new tankette was needed. So in 1933, development of the project was given to Tokyo Gas and Electric Industry, later known as Hino Motors.
0: So they called up the gas company and the electric company and said, Hey, uh, everybody else is busy building aircrafts and uh, uh, aircraft carriers. So um, we're going to have you build this (laughs) tank. And they went with the tankette you got to tell us more about that.
1: The completed 1934 experimental model was a small, light-tracked vehicle with a turret armed with one machine gun. The design was standardized as the Type 94 Tankette and was designated for reconnaissance and infantry support. It entered service in 1935, but was later superseded by the Type 97 Tankette. Both were tailored vehicles for operating in China.
0: Basically, at the time... The Imperial Japanese Army is wanting to, they know they want to go with a lighter tank, that something that they can use for infantry support, and they're not really doing any anti-tank fighting. Russ, what was the stats on that Type 94 tank head?
1: It was designed in 1932 and produced between the years of 1935 and 1937. They built 823 of these little tank heads.
0: Well, how tall are these little things, even with the turret?
1: Yeah, they were about 1.62 meters or 5 foot 4 inches tall. (laughs) The Lee's twice that. (laughs) You got to realize, too, the Japanese folks aren't the tallest people in the world either. So Right. So they they probably fit in there pretty good. Uh, It had two crew members. It had a commander and a driver. The armor on these little tankettes were between about 8 and 12 millimeters thick. Or 0.31 to 0.47 inches.
0: Not a lot.
1: Not much armor at all. So
0: what was the main armament?
1: It had a 6.5 millimeter Type 91 machine gun. And no secondaries. No secondary armament at all.
0: <laughs> wow. So basically two guys running around in uh, armored turret tank yet with a machine gun. Yeah. Okay, what kind of motor and what kind of speed are we talking about?
1: Yeah, it had a Mitsubishi Franklin... Air-cooled inline four-cylinder gasoline engine. It had about 32 horsepower or 24 kilowatts of power. It had a power-to-weight ratio of about nine horsepower per ton. Wasn't real speedy, I guess you'd say. The speed actually ranged anywhere usually right around 40 kilometers an hour. It's 25 miles an hour.
0: Being in an armored car, or this tank ad, I apologize, and you're doing 25 or 40 kilometers an hour on Chinese paths. They really didn't have roads out in certain areas. Uh, That's going to be some rough riding. I
1: would imagine, yeah.
0: What kind of suspension and what kind of range?
1: Yeah, it had a two-wheel bogey suspension, and it... Its range on a tank of gas was about 200 kilometers or 120 miles.
0: Yeah, Mitsubishi four-cylinder yeah. engine. Yeah, yeah, you can get about that. Yeah, you can get that nowadays. <laughs> that's
1: pretty good gas mileage, yep.
0: Wow, now that's what they call a tanket, I guess. You know, two people running down the road. I know the Chinese or China uh, had the Italian tankets. That a Chinese National Revolutionary Army had uh, three tank battalions. And those tank battalions were equipped with uh, this tankette. I know they had, in their battalions, they had the Carton Lloyd from Britain. Uh, They had the French Renault uh, UE. And uh, I think they call it a Camelette or Canelette. It's an Italian tankette. So could you imagine them having a tank battle, running around, machine gunning each other, and they had enough armor where the machine guns couldn't, it turned into bumper cars. <laughs> yeah.
1: I would actually like to see one of these. So, so if anybody out there knows where I can find a little tankette in a museum, I would really like to see one.
0: Yeah, that would be great. So we can actually, maybe if we're really lucky, be able to stand in one. There you go. Yeah. Or put me in one. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, it's supposed to fit two people and it only fits uh, me. Well, I need to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all?
1: <laughs> so,
0: Russell, when did... The Japanese get their first effective tank.
1: The Type 95 Hago was a light tank used by the Empire of Japan during the Second Sino-Japanese War at Nomahan against the Soviet Union and in the Second World War.
0: That's right, because when they went into China, they had already taken Korea. They were going into China. And they got real close to the Russian border. Comrade Stalin was like, hey, be careful. So I guess that kicked off a pretty good war. And I think that died out. And then they started a second one.
1: It proved sufficient against infantry. But, like the American M3, Stuart light tank was not designed to combat other tanks. Approximately 2,300 of the Type 95 Hoggos were produced, making it the most numerous Japanese armored fighting vehicle of the Second World War.
0: We are going to do an episode on the Stuart someday. But again, people, you know, that's a future episode. I know we've gotten some comments when we were going to do the Stuart, and I said, well, you know, I, I still researching it and i found out there was a 90 millimeter gun put on the Stuart, and people are like you're lying i'm like no really the Stuart had a 90 90- anyway <laughs>
1: go go but stay tuned for yeah. that episode
0: yeah and then you can make more fun of me then go ahead Russ. i'm sorry
1: the most characteristic feature of the type 95 tank was its simple suspension system army officer tomio hara designed the bell crank scissor system This suspension system became standard on the majority of the subsequently designed Japanese tanks. For the Type 95, two paired bogey wheels per side were suspended on a single bell crank and connected to a coil spring mounted horizontally outside the hole.
0: Now, this Chamiyo uh, that we're talking about developed his own basically be kind of suspension you know we can talk about Christie's suspension and some of the other suspensions but here's a guy starting off you know just all this was dumped on him and they're like you got to come up with a suspension so he came up with his own that's amazing
1: it really is yes and there is a youtube video that i know you sent me a link to here the other day that really shows how this this bell crank suspension system works and how it worked well in the trenches and and everything. We'll try to make uh, sure to add that to our uh, Facebook and our uh, dot-com site. Uh, The tracks were driven through the front sprockets. There were two return wheels, and the suspension had troubles early on with a tendency to pitch on rough ground, so it was modified with a brace to connect the pairs of bogies. Despite this, the tank continued to give its users a rough ride across any uneven ground. It was provided with an interior layer of asbestos padding separated from the hole with an air gap to isolate the crew from the sun-heated armor plates and to protect the crew from injury when the tank moved across rough terrain.
0: So they put asbestos in the tank and said, this is here to make you safe. So the crews were probably just going to die because of the asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Wow. Oh. But, uh, you know, they had to go with what they had. And they're like, hey, it's getting too hot in here. It's burning our hands. Because we're talking, you know, Japan summers and China, you know, summer. Oh, yeah.
1: Well over 100 degrees. Uh, I mean.
0: I don't know what that is in Celsius. I don't either.
1: I had, I'd have to look that up. I'd,
0: ha- I'd have to call Craig Moore and yeah. say, hey, uh, how hot is that? Yeah. He'll come back with like, oh, it's 38 Celsius. I'm like, whoa. whoa. No, it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, But it was also to protect them from bouncing around because the suspension would just throw these guys back and forth.
1: Yeah, yeah, and there wasn't really any other protection in there besides this asbestos. Well,
0: Russ, give us some stats on that tank.
1: It was produced between 1936 and 1943. Uh, Approximately 2,300 were built. It weighed about 7.4 tons or 7.3 long tons, It had a length of 4.38 meters, about 14 foot 4 inches long, and it was about 2.06 meters wide, or 6 foot 9 inches. It was 2.13 meters high, or right at 7 foot high. Wow. Yeah.
0: So that, that was a substantial difference. Jump from five foot to seven
1: foot. Exactly. From a tankette to this one, yes. It had a crew of three. Its main armament consisted of a Type 94 37 millimeter tank gun. Now, 37
0: is what uh, a lot of the British early tanks had in like, um, let's go ahead and say North Africa. I know the beginning uh, when the uh, Germans went into the Soviet Union, Soviets had tons of these light tanks with these 37 millimeters.
1: What kind of second armament did it have? Yeah, it had two 7.7 millimeter Type 97 machine guns as its secondary armament. The engine was a Mitsubishi A6120 VD air cooled inline six cylinder 14.4 liter diesel engine, which had about 120 horsepower right at 1800 RPMs. The power to weight ratio was about 16 horsepower. Per ton, like we talked about, all the most of the Japanese tanks all had the bell crank suspension system, so this one did too. Uh, had a range of about 209 kilometers and a speed of about 45 kilometers per hour or 28 miles per hour on the road.
0: So, at the beginning of the war, this would be a pretty good tank, you know, 209 kilometers, it goes 28, it's faster than the tank head, it's got an anti tank gun, the 37 which could also use uh, HE for infantry and stuff like that, you know, with a couple of pretty good machine guns. So, and they've upped it to three-man crew. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. It really
1: is. Yeah. Huge jump from the little tankette.
0: But again, another Mitsubishi engine. Yeah. Well, I have made a lot of acquaintances and uh, friends through uh, the local college up here. And uh, one of the kids that I was talking to was from India. And he had actually told me a story of a battle his, I think, great-grandfather was in when he was in the Indian army against the Japanese. And when he told me about the battle, he says, oh yeah, it was at the Battle of the Admin Box. And I'm like, Admin Box? All right, you're pulling my leg. And he goes, no, no, if you look it up, uh, there was a battle called the Admin Box, also referred to as the Battle of Nakadaku, or the Battle of Senzawa. Uh, it depends on if you're on the Japanese side or the Indian side, I guess. But the British just called it the Battle of Admin Box. It took place on the southern front of the Burma campaign from February 5th to the 23rd of 1944. The most vital reinforcements uh, of all were two squadrons, Of M3 Lees, there's my Lee again. There's your Lee. (laughs) Uh, These Lees are part of this uh, 25th Dragoons, and the 25th Dragoons was a cavalry regiment of uh, from India uh, Indians and uh, of the British Army from 1941 to about 1947. Six of the regiment's tank clashed with Japanese. So basically, they were sending out like a platoon. Uh, American platoons of tanks were five, but apparently the Indian regiment had six, uh, tanks and, uh, the Japanese also had six tanks of these, uh, type 95 Hago tanks. Um, but in the fight, um, they destroyed five of them and, uh, they captured the other one Well, the guy was saying that his grandfather was the commander of Lee tank when this battle happened. I'm like, no way. (laughs) And he says, I can only tell you what he told me. So this is hearsay. People were not saying this is historical fact, but apparently he spotted them first and got his crew ready. They loaded up their 37 millimeter uh, anti-tank gun on their turret. And then they loaded up their 75. Well, they fired the 75 and hit the first uh, Japanese tank, and it just blew apart. We, uh, one of the design flaws of the Japanese tanks, they didn't use a lot of welding. They used rivets. And we've talked about using rivets. It's a bad idea. Yes. Uh, if you get hit and your tank's made of rivets, these rivets will bust apart and actually become shrapnel that goes all over the tank. And when these rivets are broke, anything that's holding it together kind of falls in. So if you got hit in the right spot, your tank would just fall in and kill you. Wow. So you might want to, you know, change the welding. But again, everybody that was a good welder and the gas and everything else was being sent to the, you know, naval yards. So he fires, kills this first Japanese tank. He's controlling the turret, part with 37, and shoots the back, kills it flat out just shoots it and kills everybody in the crew. They had some machine gunners that started machine gunning and keeping them down and stuff like that. And apparently the Japanese were trying to find out where this was coming from. By that time, he loads again, shoots two more times, The 75, hits another tank, kills it. He shoots another tank with a turret, kills it. So they have two tanks left. He starts charging it. He does move forward because they're kind of like trying to get out of the kill zone. So why they're going the guy fires the 75 on the move heading towards him and hits another tank, blows that up, kills everybody in there. And then they ram the last tank, the one they capture, and they push it off the path or off the road into a deep ditch. And then they all jump out and take these guys. Well, he said they didn't take them hostage. They end up killing them right then and there. And, uh, they came back and said, hey, we captured one of these tanks. So his first engagement, and he had five guys behind him that didn't even know what he was shooting
1: at. Wow, incredible. You know, but
0: by the time they turned around or, you know, figured out what he was shooting at and got ready and started aiming, he had already charged up there and killed him. Wow. You Can't say the Indians didn't know how to fight. Oh, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, one for the Lee, and wow. I would love to find where that captured Uh, Japanese tank went, though. Yeah, exactly. The Hago, yeah.
1: In the Pacific Theater, you had Saipan. It lasted between about June 15th to July 9th of 1944, and that was the first clash between the M4 Sherman and the Japanese Type 97 Kaishinoto Chiha. Uh, The Imperial Japanese Army launched a night counterattack against the U.S. Beachhead, and the attackers included most of the 9th Tank Regiment with 90 tanks, last two companies stationed on Guam. So,
0: they've got 90 tanks, they're waiting for a night attack, and they're just going to come
1: down and try to fight the M4s? That's what it sounds like, yeah.
0: yeah. Give us some more information on that.
1: It fielded mostly medium type 97s, with some type 97 Kaishinoto Chiha, with the more lethal 47 millimeter cannon, as well as the ubiquitous type 97 light tanks. The Japanese Naval Infantry, usually uncoordinated with the Army, operated the company of Type 95s and an unknown number of amphibious Type 2 Kami vehicles.
0: Those amphibian tanks, um, I have yet to see one, you know, actual even pictures of them, but I've seen the designs and they look like a boat with a turret.
1: A boat with a turret, yeah. yeah. I do not doubt that. Yeah. So,
0: so the Navy had their own besides the Army. And they're like, you know what? We're going to back these guys up. We're going to jump in with these 90 other tanks. So they had some of these 95s and these Type 2 Ka Oh, you got you to gotta give us
1: more detail. The Japanese commander, Colonel Goto, went down the slopes of Mount Tapachau at night to attack the American 2nd Tank Battalion, led by Captain Frank Stewart, the 9th Regiment attacked with troops of the 136th Infantry Regiment, riding or following the tanks, and he was waiting for them.
0: Okay, so let me give you a little, you know, imagery here. Captain Frank Stewart is down there with his M4s, uh, uh, with his 2nd Tank Battalion. He's loaded, you know, uh, with uh, big rounds, and uh, and the Japanese were going to kamikaze, and they had actual infantry troops riding on top. Probably not the best way to add extra armor, I guess. I
1: agree, yeah. And
0: and so Captain Stewart is down at the bottom of the hill. He hears these Japanese tanks clinking and clanking and coming down the hill. And he's waiting for for them, loaded with uh, APCR, you know, the
1: armor-piercing rounds. I think I know where this ends. I probably would agree with you, Charlie. But actually... Uh, marine tankers begin to recognize that their armor-piercing projectiles were passing clean through the lightly armored Japanese armor, sometimes leaving them in action. And so they switched to the high-explosive 75 millimeter ammo to make their hits count. So yeah, they they tried using the
0: APCR,
1: APCR, and it passed right straight on through the so, Japanese tanks.
0: So we, our our 75 rounds were way too. Penetrating and going right through. Yeah. Can you imagine being a Japanese commander and just watching whistle through?
1: Right there in front of your eyes.
0: Wow. But so these American units are like, you know what? Let's change to HE and uh, white phosphorus. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, go on.
1: And although the night tactics of the enemy allowed them to come uncomfortably close, the Japanese tanks roared out of the darkness but ran into a madhouse of noise, tracers, and flashing lights. And as tanks were hit and set afire, they silhouetted other tanks, coming out of the flickering shadows to the front, or already on top of the marine tanks. And from about 3 o'clock in the morning till about 7 o'clock in the morning on the 17th, the landing force flayed the Japanese with tank, bazooka, anti-tank gun, artillery and three quarters of the enemy tanks remained on the battlefield as smoldering hulk. so when they think they're close enough
0: they start firing machine gun tracer rounds and popping uh, flare lights and uh, putting spotlights and everything else on them so they see them a little bit and they start shooting them and they catch fire as the tanks other tanks in front of them or behind them come up front and the flames are actually lighting up, so it was just a turkey shoot. Yeah. But they were so close, they were actually getting right next to them, and they were machine gunning these Shermans, and everybody says, oh, the Sherman didn't have any armor. All these 47s and 37s were just bouncing off of all these Shermans. Wow. Go on. This is actually And good good.
1: believe it or not, the Americans lost no tanks at all during that particular battle. <laughs> so they they sent have 90 tanks from the
0: Army, a bunch of the— Navy tanks that come down, and they all well, like you said, three quarters of them just sit there and burned, yeah, wow,, yep. and the Americans lost no tanks all right, what well, one for the Sherman there. <laughs> I guess we could say uh, the Sherman was best on the Pacific front, besides being the best on the western. there front. you
1: go, yeah,
0: all right, uh, you said something about the Japanese tank were type ninety seven Can you give us some info on that?
1: Yeah, the Type 97 Shinoto Chihas was a medium Japanese tank used in World War II that was an upgrade to the original Type 97 Chaiha. Uh, the new version was designated Type 97 Kai, which meant improved, or Shinoto Chiha, new turret from the Chiha. This design was considered to be the best Japanese tank. To Have seen combat service during the Pacific War, so it wasn't the most numerous, but this was their best tank. This was the best, it had the
0: 47, it had the improved turret. Oh, well, basically, like you said, Kai means improved, and uh, Chiha is new turret, yeah. So they had these 47s. Uh, tell us some of the stats on this thing,
1: yeah. It was designed between 1939 and 1941. There was about 930 of them built. They weighed 16 tons, and they were about 5.5 meters long, about 18 foot long.
0: That's pretty long.
1: Pretty long. 2.3 meters wide, comes out to about 7 foot 8 inches wide, and 2.38 meters high, 7 foot 10 inches.
0: Wow. So, a a good
1: tank. Good one, yeah. How
0: many crew members
1: did it have? It had five crew members. It had a commander- a gunner, a loader, a bow gunner, and a driver. So they're improving big time on on the number of crew well, in their Well, hopefully they
0: improve on the armor. What kind of armor are we looking at?
1: The front of the turret had 33 millimeters of armor. Uh, the turret sides had 26 millimeters. The whole front had 25 millimeters of armor. And the whole sides had 26 millimeters of armor. Just about like on every other tank, the whole rears had about 20 millimeters of armor.
0: Which so basically the weak spot was in the rear. In the rear, yeah. Okay. What kind of main armament?
1: It had one type one forty seven millimeter tank gun as its main armament. And along with that, secondary armament, it had two seven point seven millimeter type ninety seven machine guns. Okay, so I'm listening to this and on paper this is sounding pretty good. Yeah. What kind of motor? It had the Mitsubishi sa 12200 VD air-cooled V12 diesel engine, about 170 horsepower at 2,000 RPM. So it looks like they made some improvements there to the engine. It still had the bell crank suspension, and it had an operational range of 210 kilometers, about 130 miles. And that turned into about 38 kilometers an hour and 24 miles per hour.
0: Well, it sounds like the 47 was a definite upgrade from the 37, but too bad they didn't, you know, upgun it again.
1: Yeah. Well, they did actually upgun it. The short barrel 120 millimeter tank gun was one variant produced late in the war for the Imperial Japanese Navy. Uh, They wanted it. Tank gun similar to the Type II Hawaii for close support, uh, but with greater firepower. The standard 47-millimeter main tank gun was replaced with a short-barrel naval 12-centimeter or 120-millimeter anti-submarine gun with a muzzle brake added.
0: No, wait a minute.
1: They put... A twelve centimeter gun on a medium
0: tank, and we've got we've got pictures of this. When we release this episode, we'll make sure that picture's out to our world of tanks players. This is what we're talking about. Could you imagine a a tier five with a 12 centimeter gun?
1: I couldn't even imagine. Even with a muzzle brake, could you imagine Uh, of the force inside that thing? You're sitting
0: there talking about five guys in this tank loading that shell, uh, which was huge. They're shooting at submarines. It's an anti-submarine gun. (laughs) Okay, that could, that, I guess would classify as a derp gun.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Well, I bet that... Colonel running down the hill with those tanks, wish he had a few of those. <laughs> Yeah,
1: it may have helped him a little bit. Yeah.
0: But could you imagine that? That huge gun, 120 millimeters, and your tank's made out of rivets. Yeah. After about the third shot, I'd freak everything. I would... think it would. Wow. Okay, go on. I'm sorry.
1: In addition, um, this particular tank had a small storage compartment added onto the back of the Shinho Toe Chaiha Ha turret. Uh, only about a dozen were produced. For deployment by the Japanese Special Naval Landing Forces.
0: See? Japan and their naval guns. Yeah. Like we were talking, just like World of Tanks. They have these uh, Oni tanks uh, that were designed. They were never built. So we're not really going to cover them. But they did have these huge heavy tanks. And they had these huge naval guns that were meant to destroy, you know, aircraft carriers. And they put them on tanks. Wow. Wow. This is a great talk. It is. Well, I know we talk about movie tanks a lot. And I introduced uh, Russell to a new movie, or it's actually an older movie. But the movie's called My Way. And I believe it's a Korean movie. And if you guys want to see actually some really good, you know, tank action and battle scenes, uh, My Way's got, you know, some really great stuff in it. And uh, when I showed, you know, Russ the movie and the trailer, it just blew Russ away. Uh, Russ, what do you think of the movie trailers?
1: I'll be honest with you. I think it may be one of the better tank movies. I have not watched it all the way through yet, but boy, it is definitely on my list to watch. But yeah, just the trailer was just, oh man, we'll put a link to the trailer and, and the little bit of the movie they've got on YouTube and, and you'll see what I'm trying to say that, that it was, there's just so much action and. And watching these Japanese tanks take part in this, it, it's just incredible.
0: Well, I kind of cheated and I, I went to YouTube and I said, Russell, you got to watch this battle scene. And basically the Japanese knew that the Soviets were coming and uh, they were setting up. But they had put trucks full of gasoline barrels and put gasoline barrels and basically self-detonating, you know, kamikaze type stuff, explosives. And these trucks, with all the gas, were supposed to ram Russian tanks and then detonate. And then they also had a lot of these um, soldiers with uh, kamikaze explosives. And they would charge these uh, Soviet BT tanks and throw themselves underneath them and pull the cord and uh, blow up these tanks. Probably not a good way to fight. You know, you get your most dedicated soldiers to basically suicide attack.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: In this battle, this was actually a, a real battle between the Japan and the Soviets. Russ, tell us a little bit about this battle.
1: Yeah, the battle of Kalkangol. Um it was a decisive engagement of the undeclared Soviet Japanese border conflicts fought among the Soviet Union, Mongolia, Japan, and Machukuo. In 1939.
0: Now, Manchukuo was basically the puppet government
1: that the Japanese had set up
0: for China. Uh, When they invaded China, they set up this puppet government. It's no longer around, I don't think.
1: I was going to say, yeah, I never even heard of that myself.
0: Yeah, it was just a puppet government.
1: Uh, The conflict was named after the river Kalkangol, which passes through the battlefield. Uh, In Japan, the decisive battle of the conflict is known as the Nomahan Incident. The battles resulted in the defeat of the... Japanese 6th Army. Now, the Japanese 6th Army um, was
0: elite. You know, these guys trained and went to military academies,
1: and they had some really good leaders.
0: Let's get into some of the Japanese leaders and what they had.
1: Uh, Lieutenant General Yoshikoka Masahomi, uh, the Imperial Japanese Army Commanding Officer of the 1st Tank Corps. Pretty much they had several tanks that they used in the battle.
0: Now, the 1st Tank Corps if I remember right, that he was commanding, had two regiments, the third and the fourth. What kind of tanks did they have?
1: The third tank regiment of this particular first tank corps had 26 Type 89 IGO medium tanks. It had four Type 97 Chiha medium tanks, had seven Type 94 tankettes.
0: <laughs> Any more tankettes?
1: Yeah, it had four more uh, Type 97 Tiki uh, tankettes along with the Type 94s.
0: What the 4th Regiment have?
1: 4th Regiment had 35 Type 95 Hago light tanks. It had 8 Type 89 Igo medium tanks. And it had 3 Type 94 tankets. Okay. So he's
0: got his tanks. You know, he's got them set up. He, he's a professional soldier. So uh, what happened, Russ?
1: Uh, the Soviets dispatched a new corps commander. Komkor uh, Georgi Zhukov, who arrived on June 5th and brought more motorized and armored forces to the combat zone. Accompanying Zhukov was Komkor Shmushkevich with his aviation unit, the corps commissar of the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Army, was appointed Zhukov's deputy. Uh, Zhukov, perceiving the threat, launched a counterattack with 450 tanks and armored cars. The tanks consisted of primarily BTs with a handful of T-26s, while the armored cars were BA-10s and BA-3s. Slash sixes, uh, which were similar in armor.
0: What kind of armor did they they have? They had
1: six to 15 millimeters of armor. Armament-wise, they had uh, their main gun a 45 millimeter or two-inch gun. And had two 7.62 millimeter machine guns. The Soviet armored force, despite being unsupported by infantry, attacked the Japanese on three sides and nearly encircled them. The Japanese force further handicapped by having only one pontoon bridge across the river for supplies forced to withdraw, uh, recrossing the river on July 5th.
0: zukov has got 400 and some tanks plus air support and has his supply lines in pretty good shape. The Japanese have one little pontoon boat or bridge for all their Supplies?
1: Yeah, to get across the river, wow. get their supplies across the river. The 1st Tank Corps of the Yasuoko Detachment attacked on the night of July 2nd, uh, moving in the darkness to avoid the Soviet artillery on the high ground of the river's west bank. A pitched battle ensued in which the Yasuoko Detachment lost over half its armor, but still could not break through the Soviet forces on the east bank and reach Kawatama Bridge. He's wanting the bridge, and he's wanting to
0: push these Soviets out, and he attacks at night on the bank of the river, and he gets in a big pitch battle, and he loses half his armor, and he's got to retreat, basically.
1: Pretty much, yeah. Probably his only choice.
0: What was the Soviet counterattack like?
1: Yes, uh, after a Soviet counterattack on July 9th, through the battered, depleted Yasuoka detachment, it was dissolved, and Yasuoka was relieved. He makes this attack and the Soviets counterattack,
0: and they're just tore up. Basically, the whole detachment is just depleted. Yeah. So they're like, hey, you are relieved.
1: Overall, the Japanese lost 42 tanks in these encounters, primarily to 45-millimeter gunfire, which outranged the Japanese weapons. In return, on July 3rd alone, the Soviet-Mongolian side lost a total of 77 tanks and 45 armored cars out of a total of 133 and 59 committed to the fight, respectively.
0: So the Japanese put a big dent in them. I mean, we they lost 42 tanks, but they lost 77 of their tanks. And forty-five armored cars. They didn't have enough. No,
1: exactly. That's what so it the, sounds like. So the yes. Soviets
0: had way more. They, even though the Japanese were putting up a great fight, they couldn't fight them back. There's just too many. We have to do an episode uh on the Soviet BT tanks and discuss them. Right, yes, I can't wait to get into. Oh, the Soviet I, BT I tanks. agree.
1: I agree. That will that'll be some interesting stuff there.
0: I'm sorry, Russ, but go on. You were talking about the two armies. Uh,
1: the two armies continued to spar with each other over the next two weeks along a four-kilometer front running along the east bank of the kalkan River to its junction with the Holston River. Uh, with war apparently imminent in Europe, Zukov planned a major offensive on August 20th to clear the Japanese from the Kalkan gol region. And in the fighting, Zukov, using a fleet of at least 4,000 trucks, transporting supplies from the nearest base in Cheetah, assembled a powerful armored force of three tank brigades, the 4th, 6th, and 11th. Wow. And two mechanized brigades, the 7th and 8th, which were armored car units with attached infantry to support.
0: Uh, so he's got his stuff together. And the Japanese haven't even redid any of their stuff, right? They haven't resupplied. Uh uh Uh-oh.
1: This force was allocated to the Soviet left and right wings. The entire Soviet force consisted of three rifle divisions, two tank divisions, and two more tank brigades. In all, some 498 BT-5 and BT-7 tanks were included in those brigades.
0: Wow. So Zhukov has got himself together. Now he's resupplied and he's getting ready to just you know, go into their territory. Yeah,
1: he's definitely not messing around with this anymore.
0: What other things did he have?
1: He also had two motorized infantry divisions and over 550 fighters and bombers
0: (laughs) at his disposal.
1: The Mongolians committed two cavalry divisions.
0: The Mongolians? Yeah, head their cavalry. yeah you know what mongolians on horseback is probably a bad uh, thing for the japanese yeah because i know it was a bad thing for all of europe
1: <laughs> and zukov decided it was time to break the stalemate at 0545 on august 20th 1939 soviet artillery and 557 aircraft attacked japanese positions the first fighter bomber offensive in Soviet Air Force history. So, Zukov was a pretty good general. And he goes, you
0: know what? Before I send my boys in there with horses and, you know, run, run up there, let's get these uh, artillery and these fighter bombers. Yeah. And it was the very first
1: Soviet. Wow. Okay, so he's a pretty good general. There you go. Approximately 50,000 Soviet and Mongolian soldiers of the 57th Special Corps defended the east bank of the Kalkangol River. Three infantry divisions and a tank brigade crossed the river, supported by massed artillery and the Soviet Air Force. Once the Japanese were pinned down by the attack of Soviet center units, Soviet armored units swept around the flanks and attacked the Japanese in the rear, achieving a classic double envelope. When the Soviet wings linked up at Nomonhan village on August 25th, the Japanese 23rd infantry division was trapped.
0: So they had all these... The Soviets basically have them enveloped, and they're just basically surrounded.
1: On August 26th, the Japanese counterattack to relieve the 23rd Division failed. On August 27th, the 23rd Division attempted to break out of the encirclement, but also failed. And when the surrounded forces refused to surrender, they were again hit with artillery and air attacks. They tried
0: to relieve them. They sent guys to you know try to break them. The Soviets just decimated them shoved them back and they've encircled them now and basically said it's time to surrender. And they're like, we're not going to surrender. So they start hitting them again with artillery and air. Good Lord. I
1: I know. I mean, you got to finally realize when enough's enough.
0: Live to fight another day. Yeah.
1: By August 31st, Japanese forces on the Mongolian side of the border were destroyed, leaving remnants of the 23rd Division on the Manchurian side. The Soviets had achieved their objective.
0: Basically, they wouldn't surrender. They got smashed. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Japanese general, I think his name was Kama Subra. He, he's not. Going to accept this?
1: He pretty much refused to accept the outcome and and prepared a counteroffensive. Uh, this was canceled when a ceasefire was signed in Moscow. While Zhukov defeated the Japanese forces on Soviet territory, Joseph Stalin had made a deal with Nazi Germany.
0: Oh, so zukov has got him smashed. The Japanese general is getting to do a counter-offensive, but he still doesn't have the forces that they have. So that's going to be probably tore up. Yeah. Zhukov could probably go all the way and push him clear out of China. Hitler and Stalin make this deal. I think that led to the Polish invasion.
1: After the Soviet success at Nomahan, Stalin decided to proceed with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact which was announced on August 24th. The Soviet Union and Japan agreed to a ceasefire on September 15th, which took effect the following day at 1.10 p.m. Uh, free from a threat in the Far East, Stalin proceeded with the Soviet invasion of Poland on September 17th. Basically,
0: Stalin's looking at kicking, or probably could have kicked the Japanese out of China at that time, but China at the time really wasn't an industrialized nation, and Poland had more, and he was making a deal with, you know, that would be tough. You don't want to start a two-front war. I mean, it's just classical. You don't want to do it.
1: Exactly. So
0: if it wasn't for Stalin and the pending war in Europe, Soviets probably would have, you know, pushed all these guys back and, um, you know, maybe helped us a bunch. You know, if the Japanese were getting pushed back at at that time, I, I still think that was before Pearl Harbor. Boy, that would have changed everything that's kind of a neat way to think. It sure would have. Uh-huh. Uh, again, people, we always stress that you should go and research this stuff and find out about this. Cause it's really interesting. Okay. But I also know that the Germans were dealing with the Japanese. In fact, uh, they sent general, Oh, Yamash. How do you say his
1: Yamashita? Name?
0: Yeah. They sent him to Germany in order to learn more about, uh, tank tactics following a crushing one-sided, uh, battle of France. You know, the Germans had taken France, I guess. Japanese signed that uh, pact with Germany and Italy, and then he... uh Returned to Japan and stressed the need for, you know, making more of these uh, tanks and stuff like that. I know plans were put underway for the formation of uh, 10 new armored divisions uh, for Japan. Basically, Japan gets their wake up call that they're going to need better tanks. The Soviets, they're just like, "Uh, we got bigger fish to fries. Let's just make a peace pack. We got stuff going on in Europe. Oh, well, what a great episode. Uh, Let's do our wrap up. We've been running a little long, and I apologize, but I really got interested in the battle and i hope you did too what ways to contact us
1: two main ways uh, that you can all contact us out there are through our email address uh, two tankers and cat at gmail.com you can also find us on facebook uh, that's another good way to contact us through the facebook messenger just do a search for two tankers and a cat podcast and you'll find us right there on facebook
0: No, what's our phone number again
1: Yes, we do have our phone number. Actually, I challenge any of you out there to be the first one to use it. Um, it still hasn't been used yet. Wow. And what we're going to wind up doing is if you leave us a voicemail with your comments or feedback or questions, we will actually include that in in the future episode of our podcast.
0: Oh, so if somebody calls us, we'll we'll put them on, on wow. the podcast.
1: We'll put them on the podcast. See, yes.
0: call, call us, people. We're lonely. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And that phone number, it can be found on Facebook. It can also be found on our website, um, www.twotankersandcat.com. And if you want to write it down now, the phone number is 785-380-9844. Repeating, 785-380-9844. All right, great episode. And uh, until next time, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking and have a great day.